E3 is coming back this year, but it's gonna be digital only, which means you better buy it now or else Sony's gonna take it down. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we are talking about indie games. What is the deal with them? How did they become popular? When did the indie rise start? Let's get into it. I'm Jason Dreyer. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hello, Kirk and Maddie. Hello. Hello. It's us. Hello, my friends. Are you ready for another week? Of triple clicking, triple casting, triple click casting. <laughs> triple casting. Yes, I am. I am excited. Three casts, one for each of us, all combined to form triple click. That's true. We do combine to form. <laughs> Speaking of casts, if you want extra, if you want extra triple casts, all mm-hmm. you have to do is become a maximum fun subscriber. We are entirely listener supported, and we appreciate all of our supporters and all of our listeners, even the ones who don't support us. But we uh, we provide extra bonus content to those who do support us. Every month we are doing a bonus episode about all sorts of things. Um, we talk about our lives. We spoil things. We do all sorts of fun stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Last uh, last true. month we did an episode where we talked about our personal canons, our the video games and shows and movies and stuff that have most been most formative for us. Um, we've also done beans casts where we spill the beans on various things um, about uh, the Last of Us two and Final Fantasy seven remake and Control and all sorts of other games and shows and movies and stuff. Uh, we got a really fun one planned for later this month we that do. we'll announce soon. We'll probably announce Not that yet? next week. Okay. All right. Um, Not quite yet. No, we'll announce that <laughs> next week. We'll have to week. wait one more week to find out. Okay. If you want to become a member uh, and help support the show, just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Yeah, um, please do. And one more quick note before we get started is that next week we'll, we will be doing part two of our Final Fantasy VI playthrough. Um, and for those of you who are playing along and have not gotten this far yet we are ending we are we're going up to the end of the game's first half aka the end of the floating continent the end of the floating continent so mm-hmm. uh if you want to play along play up until then okay kirk maddie today we are doing a what's the deal with what's the deal with what's the deal with Indie games. What's the deal with indie games, Kirk, Maddie? Everyone's talking about these indie things. What is the deal with Yeah, that? what are those? It's what true. even are those? I think I like them. I think mm. I like them. That's, that's where I'm starting. So far. Do you? So seem, far, I think they're pretty good. They seem pretty good, yeah. They pretty seem good. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, indie video There's games. There's just been so little time to evaluate them, it's as true, we'll get to. It's true. It's, it's hard to say if they're good or not. <laughs> so today, um, I have a thesis to propose to you guys that uh, I think is is kind of, well, it's not really a thesis as much as it's a true fact that some people might not realize. If you're this kind is a of- good way to begin a term paper, by the way. I think it's, you're supposed <laughs> to say, I have a thesis. In fact, it is not a thesis. It is a true fact. And here it is. <laughs> no, if it was a term paper, I would be saying Webster's Dictionary defines thesis as, <laughs> <laughs> as independent as... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so what people people who are kind of newish to gaming, which I think is a decent size of our audience, people who like came into gaming late or took a break or like are are rejoined the club, the the gamers club mm-hmm. <laughs> in modern very years, exclusive club might have yeah. seen this glut of indie games and think like, oh my god, there's so many cool indie games. This is awesome. Like this treasure trove of games. This surely this must have always been the case. But no, it is not. In fact, the indie game kind of rise that we know it today didn't actually happen until the late 2000s. <gasps> wow. That's really wild, Jason. <laughs> that's like 10 years ago. Like 15 years ago, we basically didn't have an indie ecosystem. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say we didn't have indie games. There were always indie games. People were always tooling away and making games all the way back into the, the late 80s and early 90s. You would have like hobbyist developers making games on floppy disks and passing them around. And sometimes they would do what was called shareware, where like you share the first couple of levels and people have to buy uh, the rest of the game if they want the rest um, kind of like the original demos but most of those indie games um, were free or shareware and some are like not really financially viable it was very difficult to make a living as an independent developer unless you signed with a publisher or got bought by a publisher so if you look back in history most of the games that came out um, had to go with big publishers because that was the only way to get your games sold at uh, Target and GameStop and uh, uh, what was the electronic EB boutique? Games? EB Games yeah, EB yeah. Games. There you go. software etc Babbage's Blockbuster I, I I would get games. I would rent games from mm-hmm. Blockbuster all the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but it wasn't really possible to make a living as an independent developer and stay independent. Um, we right. saw like all the famous game developers of the '90s got purchased in some way. ID Software got purchased. Um, uh, 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 Origin Systems got purchased. Uh, that was Richard Garriott's Ultima Ultima Studio. Um, Maxis Will Wright Studio got purchased. Everybody got purchased. Got swallowed up by the big guys, the AAA beasts, until. I would say about 2006, 2007. And I think there's kind of like uh, what people might not realize is that like the company of all the companies to really open the floodgates for indies was Xbox and Microsoft of all companies. Um, and Xbox started a program that was called Xbox Live Arcade um, because Xbox Live was really like um, the PlayStation and, and, and PlayStation and Nintendo did not have a kind of online infrastructure that Xbox did with Xbox Live. And Xbox was able to set up a digital store and a digital ecosystem way before those other guys. And they started this thing called Xbox Live Arcade. Do you guys remember Xbox Live Arcade using using that at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Although mostly there were also any games on PC that I remember from this time period. Like I know Steam wasn't as much of a juggernaut then as people think of it as being, but that's my other main memory of indie games in the er- in the late 2000s was just PC games being the only way that you could have an indie game. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you couldn't really get on Steam um, right. until they started opening the doors a little bit more, cracking open the doors with Steam Greenlight, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but like back then, if you were an indie developer and you had some idea of like, I'm going to make commercially viable games, um, Xbox Live Arcade was like your big option. And yeah, you could find ways to sell it on PC. You could maybe luck out and get on Steam if you were really lucky. Um, mm-hmm. But there wasn't super viable... If if 
why Jason Shire decided, hey, I'm going to make a game on RPG Maker and sell it. There weren't a ton of options for me until Xbox Live Arcade came along. And so you go on Xbox Live Arcade and it's essentially this like cordoned off section of the Xbox Live store that is essentially meant for like smaller, they call it arcade because it's like smaller experiences. And so that was that is where you find all these indie games. Um, suddenly we saw a ton of success coming from indie games. And I think the real, the real biggest games of the time were Braid and Castle Crushers, Crashers, which I believe were the first two game, first two indie games to sell a million copies each, which was unheard of back then. Mm-hmm. Two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. That was that was quite a time. Um, did yeah. you guys play Braid and Castle Crashers back then? Either of those games? I did. Yeah. I part of why I mentioned PC games was because by this point I was already working at the Boston Phoenix for a while and the Phoenix was very into covering indie everything. It was a local paper, very cool, very hip <laughs> left-leaning mm-hmm. paper. Of so course. I was always like, well there are indie games, they're just not very popular. So mm-hmm. in 2006 when I was an intern, I was like just digging around desperately trying to find indie games by anyone, which is part of how I like knew about Edmund McMillan before he made um, Mm. Super Mate Boy, which is one of the other games that we'll mention in a little bit. And like, I'd, I don't know if I'd heard of Jonathan Blow, but like when Braid came out, I was already very familiar with indie games. And so I was prepared to cover them by the time 2008 came around. And then I remember some of my coworkers at that time had finally started to hear about Braid and Super Meat Boy and some of these other games in that time period. And they were like, oh, like Maddie's already on these things, but they weren't popular. It wasn't like, you know, regular people knew about them until the Braid era, or at least that was my perception of it at that time. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I played Braid. This was right around when I was getting back into video games after taking a little while off. And my main memories of it are that I had bought an Xbox 360 and the main way that I could play games with that console was by putting discs in them and i i don't know if they were selling full downloads of games at this time i think that they weren't yet so there weren't a ton of games you could download that weren't on the xbox live arcade like xbox live was just so that you could play games online Mm -hmm. with your friends and so braid also was a smaller game just like the hard drive on the xbox 360 was very small Mm -hmm. it just was not they weren't to the point where they are now, where it's like you just download everything. Of course, obviously, you buy it day one and just get it. You had to put everything in on a disc still, usually. Mm-hmm. And I think like then later they added like you could take the disc game and install it on your hard drive and have faster load times. But even that wasn't possible in 2007 or so when I started out. So then Braid came out and I remember playing it and it was just this feeling of, oh, this is kind of just a different a different like little subcategory of games in general. It's smaller. I can just download it. There's no game box for it. And also it was this, it was Braid. So it was this game that was like based on Mario, but it was really arty and had mm-hmm. this whole, you know, kind of sad storyline that, unf- like it was like a very subversive game, like really obviously in a lot of ways of being like, yeah. what if the hero like doesn't win in the end? And actually like, it's a big metaphor for like not being able to undo your mistakes and rewinding time. And it was just kind of like more artistic and more obviously so than other games too, which I think really also just established for me, okay, like, that's there's this other avenue of games that I know had existed before, but I was pretty ignorant of a lot of that. And just seeing it on Xbox and playing it, I was like, oh, okay, like this is this other kind of game. Oh, this is pretty cool. And I have a feeling that a lot of people had my experience where it was just the first time they'd really experienced that kind of a game. And it was largely because it was just on Xbox. And you could just download it and play it. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, what happened was uh, the Xbox Live Arcade launched. Um, it was, I believe it was first launched for the original Xbox, but then it was kind yes, of repackaged for the for Xbox like 360. Yeah, yeah, for the 360. The 360 came out, and then Microsoft really started pushing Xbox Live Arcade, and I think that's what the big difference was. And that's mm-hmm. why some of these indies were able to really stand out. So what they started doing was, by the way, the original limit for these games was 50 megabytes. You can have a game mm-hmm. that was more than 50 megabytes, which is hilarious yesterday wow um but uh but yeah so they would so xbox would start doing these like summer promotions and they called it the xbox live summer yep. of arcade Some of and one of their and first castle crashers was in there too right? castle crashers like, was in yep. there braid was in there bionic commando rearmed was in there <laughs> one of their first that. big sellers was actually before all these um was actually uno <laughs> which i don't know if you really count as an indie game since it's like a, a freaking card game it's not like a, a new it's title, a cultural but, uh, juggernaut obviously yeah, yeah sure and everyone has uno juggernaut. so yeah. um but yeah, the the summer of arcade thing turned into this big, big thing. And like that's yep. how people would really that was essentially curation of indie games. That's how people discovered like um uh Limbo uh was one of the summer of arcade games in like two thousand ten. I believe Shadow Complex was another huge one that was that like that really, right. really yeah. took oh, yeah. off. Um, so yeah, so that was, so Microsoft really just like was on the vanguard of this indie phenomenon. And it's funny because they kind of like, like lost a lot of ground to Nintendo and Sony in the years to come when it came to indie development. And they've since gained that back. But yeah, Microsoft was really the first company pushing this stuff. And in fact, if you go back in time, I'm going to read you guys a quote from Nintendo's Reggie Fizami, um, from March, 2011, that really kind of, uh, speaks to what the indie scene was like, uh, 10 years ago. I would separate out the true independent developer versus the hobbyist. We are absolutely reaching out to the independent developer. Where we've drawn the line is we are not looking to do business today with the garage developer. In our view, that's not a business we want to pursue. And that is so, (laughs) it's so funny and out of touch, but it's especially funny because he said that a a couple of months, maybe a few months after, maybe a year after, um, a little game called Minecraft first came out <laughs> and yeah. entered early access. And at this point, by 2011, Minecraft had really, like, really made waves. And Minecraft was really, it wasn't quite like Minecraft, Minecraft. Um, it wasn't a cultural phenomenon just yet, but it was at the point where people were like, like Kotaku was posting Minecraft stuff. Uh, like mm-hmm. here's what this cool, these cool things people built in Minecraft, that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But Minecraft, in a lot of ways, became the first indie game um, to just, like, become a cultural phenomenon, to become something that just exploded and and was everywhere for a very long time. Well, and, Um, interestingly, was then later bought by Microsoft. There's also, there was also Xbox Live Indies, which, so it's worth mentioning that Microsoft was also providing tools for people to make indie games. Like, they were actively supporting the development of games, which was also something that they could do because Microsoft is has this huge like software company that can provide all these tools for people. So mm-hmm. I don't think any of those like XNA games were super successful like on the scale of um you know Castle Crashers or Braid, but they did like there were a ton of games that were made because Microsoft like fully facilitated it and then gave a marketplace for them as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so yeah, so Nintendo back then and Sony to a lesser extent were just like not yeah. interested in in entering these waters until suddenly like they started gaining this traction. And I think it was around 2011, 2012 that they kind of went hit hit a pivot point. Um, and then in 2012, something else came along and changed everything. And that little something was called Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember this because it was like my third month at Kotaku in 2012 when Double Fine and Tim Schafer 
uh, came out and said, hey, we're going to go on this little thing called Kickstarter. And they started the Double Fine Adventure. Um, I think they wanted to raise something like $200,000, $250,000, and they wound up raising $4 million and exploding. Um, and just became it became this, suddenly everyone was chasing Kickstarter, like uh, companies but big and small. And we saw this just sudden glut of like cash infusions from from uh, fans who could just donate and, and support their favorite creators and find things that look cool and support them and this was also the rise of the many unfortunate scams and kickstarters that failed to deliver um. yeah and not just scams but i think just a general uh atmosphere of hopefulness around the idea of what kickstarter could provide that was overly optimistic in some cases where it just seemed like anybody could strike it rich as an indie i mean the other thing that came out this year which you're about to get to on your list is indie game the movie came out which is this mm-hmm. documentary about jonathan blow edmund mcmillan's uh game super meat boy and phil fish's mm-hmm. game fez uh and tommy Rufenis uh also helped with super meat boy he's in the film as well and just the idea that you could make an indie game and sort of be presented at least in that film is this solo auteur or like duo mm-hmm. and just a, just one guy or like a couple guys in a garage basically uh, as as Reggie would put it and make it make it big make a ton of money and then that paired with these huge kickstarter campaigns or at least huge seeming like we know that a couple million dollars isn't actually enough to make a game and double fine found that out at the end of <laughs> that campaign but at the time it seemed it seemed like this huge number. It seemed like this period of time where anybody could just make a ton of money on an indie game. And I think that was kind of dangerous and sad. And it didn't necessarily crash, but it did change a lot in the years mm-hmm. to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Um, quick correction. Double Fine Adventure raised over $3 million. And also um, worth noting that the Double Fine Adventure YouTube series is one of my favorite things ever. And I highly recommend that everyone go watch it. Yeah, we always Fine recommend Adventure that. But it, we haven't, I think on Triple Click, have we ever? It's so good. Yeah. Everyone should it watch it. Good. If you want to know how video games are made and how hard it is, you should watch mm-hmm. that documentary. And what it's like to run out of money and resources as you're going along mm-hmm. and like still want to develop more things it's a very it's a good insight into how that process yeah it's, they were wonderfully transparent i think it was very yep. cool that they made it and mm-hmm. i can't wait for part two which uh will hopefully come along when psychonauts 2 comes oh out. yeah right that's right they're making another one yeah remember tim schaefer told us on an episode of yeah Split, yeah Split Screen, a he was thousand like, years ago <laughs> yeah that was before microsoft bought his company yeah that was that's, <laughs> right? true. that's true i'm sure that'll be part of the documentary because they've I'm been sure filming it, it it's not like they're gonna throw out yeah. that footage oh man that that'll be great then that's true it's that gonna be amazing while the cameras were rolling i think the thing they really regret it is uh uh posting videos like during the course of development because they could actually affect morale and like affect development Um, and so I think they still want to be transparent but this time they're just going to release everything like close to launch um, Mm -hmm. which makes sense I think he said as much when when he was yeah Yeah, he told us that yeah I get which I get that Um, anyway so um, cut to 2013 putting aside the Kickstarter revolution and putting aside by the way we're not really going to get into mobile games but at the same time that all this was happening the Apple Store also was changing in really big ways like at first it was very much like walled garden like we only want certain things on here and then it wound up exploding and tons of games made tons and tons of money but we, we when you have like flappy bird and zach gage's stuff yeah. and all of these different yep. ridiculous fishing yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah angry yeah. birds angry birds is really the, yeah, the original birds, yeah. cultural phenomena um candy crush of course but anyway so um 2013 so this is where we get into a new generation of consoles the ps4 and the xbox one come out and both of those consoles kind of from the get-go are very digital focused obviously the xbox 
one is not as digital heavy as it originally <laughs> says it will be. <laughs> but um, but both consoles very clearly like are okay with you buying everything digitally. They're like we're we have clearly we have entered the digital revolution, and what that means, and that's a part a part of this whole story is that that barrier for entry has kind of come down, and over time it really became viable to just buy all of your games online. And while that can be a problem for all sorts of reasons, like if Sony decides, hey, we're going to take down the PS3 store this summer, um, it can also be really cool if you can't afford to print discs and get your game in store shelves, which can be an expensive proposition. And only really mm-hmm. big publishers can do that. So that was a barrier that allowed indie games to thrive. And by 2014, 2015, all three publishers, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, all had their own dedicated indie teams and they were holding like indie showcases. There was a Nintendo showcase, the GDC and Sony's showcase and Microsoft showcase. They would all do their own things where they would be like, look at all the cool quirky indie games we have coming. Um, and it actually eventually got to a point where we had too many games and we were approaching uh, maybe the first or maybe the ongoing indie apocalypse, which a lot of developers call it. Um, we'll get to that in a second though. A couple more milestones we should mention gone home comes out in 2013 um mm-hmm. we did a Depression spoiler cast on that as well. a few months ago twine mm-hmm. isn't on this list because it's a little bit more small scale maybe too small scale for for you but i think it is worth noting just in general that a bunch of tools for developing games were coming out and becoming much more accessible during this time period mm-hmm. which yes. is it's not just that these big publishers on console were making it possible for indies to develop for their platforms that was happening but it was also true that development on pc was just getting easier as more and more tools were being released and indies were sharing tools with one another and collaborating more in these online spaces that were growing. And that led to stuff like the Twine Revolution, as it's called, where there were a whole bunch of interaction fiction games around this time. And then also stuff like Gone Home inspiring other really small scale PC games that were short Mm -hmm. and sweet. Yeah, I do think that that's worth mentioning that on the development side of this, just the tools had grown more powerful and it was possible Mm. for a smaller team to make a game that made an impression with players like a game made by a lot more people that would have been a lot more expensive. Gone Home is a good example because that was a first person exploration game that looks really nice. Like it looks, you know, it doesn't look like a uber expensive game from 2013 would look but it looks good and it's first person it has 3d everything and it's sort of simulated in that way you can pick stuff up and that just i don't think would have been possible at all a few years earlier um the stanley parable is another good example a game that was made using half-life using the source engine and then eventually made into its own thing that was very very successful for davy redden another Mm -hmm. one where it's like a first person narrative game that's very clever looks really nice and just doesn't feel like even what a few years before like where braid looks really nice and has lovely art but it's just like a side scroller it's fairly simple in some ways Mm -hmm. and then of course jonathan blow would go on to make the witness which is like a first person game and is way 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 more complicated so yeah the Mm -hmm. tools were rapidly developing alongside these market like openings also developing stanley parable was a half-life mod was it not it started as one and then it was released oh, started, as a standalone was, game. And that was where kind of, it was. It was much more fleshed out. I actually I covered that game for Kotaku. It's one of the first things that I wrote about when it was a Half-Life mod. I played yeah. it. Someone left a comment on one of my posts just being like, hey, you should check this out. It's cool. And uh-huh. I played it and was like, this is super cool. And I like so got cool. Davey Redden on the phone and interviewed him and then ran this. It's probably still on Kotaku, this profile on him and about the game being like, this game is really clever. And then mm-hmm. a couple of years later, of course, he releases it as a, on Steam and it like makes a ton 
ton of money and is this massive yeah. hit and now he's you know very I'm successful. one of those like snobby people who likes the original version of the game better than the like cleaned up version yeah, that he yeah. made later the where he added cool. a bunch more jokes the original mm-hmm. is much simpler and just makes its point in a more elegant way but it yeah, it's not as it's not as flashy as the one he it's made like later. You get the idea really yeah. quickly and you're like, this is great, and then it ends, and it's like, okay, that was wonderful. Where yeah, yeah. the fleshed out version is really cool and has a lot of nice hidden stuff, but it's the same idea, and you're like, okay, I get the idea. And so I totally, mm-hmm. I totally get yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it it does show how people could do a lot with a little during this time period, which yes. I think was part of what was so exciting about indie games in this time was like, oh, you can just do something that only lasts a couple hours, and also it can get accolades from from publications mm-hmm. and journalists and be celebrated in this type of way like that was exciting too right it can hit you the like aesthetically like the way that Stanley Parable he just got this great actor with a lovely British voice and yeah. you heard that voice and it was that same feeling of like oh this feels real you know like this feels like legit <laughs> in that same way that playing Gone Home you're like oh this looks real of course because these the four people who made this are experienced AAA devs mm-hmm. they know how to make and a like thing got a real. good voice actor yeah, yeah yeah those aesthetics do matter so to your point Maddie I think that's what's really interesting is that the latter half of what you just said is what changed over the over the turn of the the century and like through the late 2000s the part of where you said can get attention for this can get like media attention for this can get buzz for this that's really what changed and i think that that you could find games in the early 2000s and the 90s especially on pc you could find all sorts of weird indie stuff um i remember one of my favorite games way back in the day was a series called jumper that was actually made by the people who would go on to make celeste it was the same concept where Oh, you're, wow. you're doing all these tricky platformers and you jump and you collect dots that give you an extra jump. It's the same exact concept, but like rudimentary and released for free back in the day. Um, but those games wouldn't get nearly as much attention as like the Braids and the Castle Crushers and then the Stanley Parables and other sorts of. So so the creativity level, I think, was the same. Um, maybe like you said, you said, Kirk, the tools were easier to use so you could funnel more of that creativity onto the screen. But it's really the biggest difference was suddenly these things were getting headlines. And you were, I mean, this also happened to, to, to coincide with the rise of digital media and um, YouTube. And there's a lot more space as opposed to like magazine pages where you could only showcase so many games. But this was a time where really, if you made something cool, you could stand, you could get attention for it. Not everybody would get attention, but you could, you had a good shot at it. Um, speaking of which, we should talk about Steam Greenlight, which was so weird, such a weird yeah. system. So Steam <laughs> back in the day didn't really know what to do with indies because it it wanted a curated store. It didn't want to be a wild, wild west where anyone could publish anything. Um, so when the indie scene started to kind of explode in the, the, in the 2010s or so, it started a program called Steam Greenlight. And essentially, if you wanted to put your game on Steam through this Greenlight program, you had to put up a page that was like your description of your game and some images, a trailer, whatever. And you had to go get people to vote for it <laughs> and Steam, Steam would green light X number of games every so often mm-hmm. based on popularity and it was pretty ridiculous um, I know some people got some success by like posting on Twitter and like social media and getting attention that way but man it was tough it was rough to be a, a reporter covering that stuff too because like every week you'd get someone being like check this out my game is on Steam Greenlight please cover yeah. it so I get it's like, sort of similar to Kickstarters for a while yeah. we would just be like we have a Kickstarter please you can help this game become yes. reality and it's like yep. alright alright <laughs> I know yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean in some ways yeah. that hasn't changed but it, it does uh, suffer from the same problem that we have now which is like if you're already successful you can continue to be successful which I, I guess I'm 
describing capitalism, but <laughs> it, it really did feel that way when Greenlight came out and a bunch of indie devs uh, levied that criticism at it very fairly. And we're just like, this just means that developers who are already really popular on Steam are going to automatically get a bunch of followers mm -hmm. and, and votes for their games because people already trust them. But the more out there ideas from people who have something cool to say, but right. like, I, it, how do you, how do you sell something that's a lot weirder mm -hmm. in that environment? Yep. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, a couple more beats we should talk about, um, around this time, like mid 2010s, we see the rise of like quote unquote indie game publishers like Devolver and Annapurna who do some yeah. awesome stuff. But, um, if you're working with a publisher, can you really be called indie anymore? Um, then we, we, I mentioned before the indie apocalypse or the beginning of the indie apocalypse where there was this glut of games. And I think the indie apocalypse, it kind of like, it, it's gone through these waves and it kind of like, there was a point where it wasn't a concern to some people anymore around 2017 because the Nintendo Switch came out and there was a period of time um, around 2017, like the latter half of 2017 into 2018, maybe a little bit of 2019, but mostly those first two years where the Switch came out Everyone was taken aback by how popular it was. Nobody expected it at all. And the library was really thin. So if you released an indie game think, on the Switch... Wait, do you think that nobody expected it? Because when I heard Nintendo's releasing a handheld console that also plays on your TV, I was thinking it was going to be awesome. I feel like some mm. people probably thought it was going to be awesome. <laughs> I think mm. you. I think in when they had their big January event, like in the, the couple months before when they announced a bunch of games and stuff, people were really pessimistic. And yeah, people always count Nintendo out. It's a whole big thing. I think like, people should go listen to the episodes of Kotaku Split Screen from around then because I think you and I were both like, this thing is going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, we were stoked because we were like, yeah, well, we love like handout gaming and like uh, we were like, yeah, this yeah. is what the Wii U should have been. Anyway, but, anyway, I don't mean to derail you. I just yes, you said nobody regardless. thought it was going to be good, and I feel like some people were probably like, this thing is going to be well, awesome. no, well, so so to that point, game publishers certainly didn't like they didn't care. Like the Switch versions of games at that point were just an afterthought. Um, I suppose I mean here's a perfect example from my new book, Press Reset which you can go pre-order now at your local bookstore. <laughs> all right, all right, um, all right, all right. Um, uh, uh, I spoke to the developers of a game called The Flame and the Flood who um, saw the Switch version as an afterthought. And when it came out in the like the fall of 2017, they were like, holy shit, like we're selling a couple hundred thousand copies on the Switch. We had no idea. Like this can literally keep our studio alive because yeah. of the Switch version. So there was a period like around that time where because the Switch's library was so thin and everybody had a Switch or lots of people had Switches and wanted stuff to play on them, um, you could really make a lot and indie games could do really well on the Switch. And that was also when people started saying every game needs to come to Switch and like every indie game that would come out and the first thing people would ask would, would be, come to Switch, when when mm -hmm. is the Switch port? When is the Switch port? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so the Switch Switch made a huge, a huge difference to indies. And now let's cut to today. So today we've we've just saw we're starting to see now like the kind of final milestone that indie games really needed to hit, which is Hades, and Hades being considered widely considered, unanimously considered a game of the year contender along the lines of The Last of Us Two. And this game made by like ten people is competing with like the AAA game made off of the the made on broken backs of hundreds of people. Um, and I think really at this point it's fair to say that like indie 
isn't a useful distinguish like distinguishing point anymore. Mm-hmm. You guys know what I mean? Like, what does indie even mean in a in a in a climate where like we're just all we're looking at all these games in exactly the same way? Like, a Hades can compete with The Last of Us too. Mm-hmm. Well, but <laughs> indie music and indie movies. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to walk down this road because we we have to do a media another media comparison. Here. No, it's fine. I was going to if you were. But going if to. we're talking about award shows and like publications considerations, you are evaluating like an indie grunge rock album alongside like a slickly produced like mm-hmm. rock album from somebody who's backed by some major studio. Like you, you're trying to evaluate those things as pieces of art within the parameters set by them. And that's what we're trying to do with games. We're trying to evaluate them as pieces of art within their parameters, their, their stated goals or their intention as far as we can glean it. And like in that way, I think it's still a useful way to think about games just in terms of like, well, the 10 people made this game as compared to a naughty dog made game that has a lot more, backing yeah i guess so okay so i should i guess i should frame this a little bit better um actually let's put this question on pause for a second i'll get back to this question in a second but first of all i want to mention i want to zoom out right that's yeah i do i want to zoom out no i want to hear both of your takes and kirk kirk i want to hear your take as many just fine i want to hear your take on like this idea that do you feel like indie games have really just like hit it, hit their, their cultural zenith? Like, are we at the point where indie games are essentially treated the same as any other game? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not really sure what that would, what that means. Like, that they're, that they're treated the same as other games. Like, well, I, I mean, I, to me, the last hurdle was like getting past the AAA hype to win the awards. Um, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think or at least like, be nominated. That, sure. that's, that to me struck me as a landmark. Cause like, we haven't seen that in the past and in, in previous years, it's always like, the the Dragon Age, Skyrim, the Metal Gear, the biggest games always get all the most attention and win all the most awards. Hades really felt like a kind of a breaking point for that. Yeah, and I guess it's hard to like tell what what getting attention means. Like games that get attention among our circles on super online Twitter video game discourse people is like very different than games that get a- get attention among other people because like Minecraft got more attention than anything. And that was from 2011. You already talked about that. So like, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I, in in any meaningful way, I think that yes, indie games are, they're absolutely their own robust, diverse, complicated whole world of creativity that is its own thing and like exists in, it it is an island the same size as the island of any other given, you know, subgenre of video games. Yeah. I think the other part of it, though, is, again, that tools aspect of it and the ease of creating these games, because that's the other thing that's happened for other forms of media as well. Like, it became easier for more people to make movies, and so you can have, you know, Kevin Smith making Clerks and showing it at a festival and so on and so forth, because he was capable of making it. And, of course, now it's significantly easier for more and more people to make movies than it used to be, and that's true of music as well. There's more tools to make it and tools to share it, and games have experienced that later than those other art forms it's only been in the past 10 to 15 years or so so indie indie ga- indie games are on a different like quest line as compared to music but like it's catching mm-hmm. up in the same type of way because those tools are now more accessible to more people which basically just means that they can be evaluated in a similar way because the the distance from your creative idea to the final product is it's easier to make that distance mm. now because you can actually just create something that looks like what you envisioned in your mind in a better way than you could in 1998. 
There is kind of a worthwhile distinction too, since I know you had mentioned this and then put a pin in it, but like this whole like what does indie mean, this distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yep. the incentives behind the creation are worth considering. And there's a you can speak very broadly, and I'm we're all speaking very broadly in here because there's just specific exceptions to any given thing. But the difference between like a shareholder like driven corporate creation like a huge publisher backed video game it just the incentives for the creation are very very different like they need to like make x amount of money or like have x amount of whatever like sell can like, get people to buy consoles from the same manufacturer or like you know synergize with whatever like there's all these different reasons that the game has been made and like incentives for the people making it to chase different things where with indie game development i would say that it does seem generally cleaner like most of the time you're just trying to like make enough money to make another one or like just make money in general, make a thing that Mm -hmm. will be profitable. You know, there's not all of that complicated stuff that tends to come in in the more corporate world. And that Mm -hmm. distinction still kind of holds for me again, speaking very broadly and being aware that there are exceptions. Mm. Well, so, okay. So circling back to that question. So the reason I ask what do indie games mean anymore is because it feels like, Maddie, to your point earlier, it feels like so many games, so many games we would call quote unquote indie made by small teams have so many structural advantages that like even smaller games might not. And it feels like we have all these different tiers of indie games. Looking at Hades as an example, Hades was announced at the 2018 Game Awards and like (laughs) there was a big showcase of it and it was like out on the Epic Game Store today in early access. And so it immediately got the eyeballs of millions of people in a way. Way that most indie games don't have the 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 platform to do. Um, on the same on the flip side of that, if you're just like one guy in your basement making a game, you just have to cross your fingers and hope that like uh, a triple click or a Kotaku will pick up on your or game. Or more likely a PewDiePie. Yeah. yeah, or a yeah. PewDiePie. Yeah. Let's, um, let's not overblow our importance too much. Yeah, well, so so I just think it's it's fascinating to me that we kind of have this big group that we call indie, um, but so much of it is like like an indie game that is published by Devolver or something like that. Like as a publisher, even an indie, indie game that's, um, I don't know, published by Google or something like that, as opposed to an indie game that is made by one person who puts it on Steam and it's like lost among the Steam new releases list. And I wonder if it's even like useful to talk up to frame things in indie versus triple A anymore. And I almost feel like we we kind of use indie as shorthand to not actually mean indie, but to just mean kind of like a quirky, unusual game that doesn't play by the same rules as the triple A games because it doesn't have an open world or skill trees and all that other shit that like every other triple A game has. So I don't know. I, that's something I've been ruminating. And that's the reason I asked, like, do does indie even mean anything anymore? Yeah, I do think it is cool, though, that in the past 15 years, we've seen more of those mid-sized studios that you describe. And that also means that there are these mid-sized publishers like Annapurna and Devolver that are interested in not necessarily mm-hmm. just the garage games, but games made by five people or games made by 10 to 15 people. And mm-hmm. how do you describe a game like that? You can make a pretty complex game with a team of that size, but it's it's still not Naughty Dog, but it can be Hades. And that's interesting to me. I feel like that is something that I didn't see that much, or at least it wasn't maybe viable in the same way in the early 2000s. And now it is. And that's mm. exciting. I do think there is a difference between that and something like you describe like a Google backed game or Microsoft buying Double Fine. That to me seems like not great. I mean, it's fine for Tim Schafer if he wants to do that. And I'm sure it seemed like the only 
way forward for him for any yeah, other reasons. I'm sure but relief financially. That's also <laughs> kind of depressing though, if that's the only way forward for a studio of double fine size, which is like it's not Naughty Dog size, it's not 15 people, it's between those things. And like what's what's there for those studios and is it possible for them to be profitable without getting bought by Microsoft? I don't know. And that worries me. Like ideally, mm. I think you have studios of a ton of different sizes and then games of a ton of different kinds. And yeah, then indie is meaningless, but in a fun way where it's cool and it doesn't matter. But I would hate to see that divide become really stark again, the way that it was 15 years ago, where it was like, you just have the garage game developers on Newgrounds. And then also you have like Halo. And those are the mm. two kinds of games there are, you know? Mm. Yeah. I hold out optimism that that won't happen like that it'll continue to just be these sort of gradients within AAA, which i also think is like an annoying label for a yeah. number of reasons like triple a it just sounds so <laughs> jargony like <laughs> we should start using quadruple a guys well that's the thing is, well, and we've <laughs> joked about it but like there are examples of like i feel like the last of us part two is kind of a quadruple a game there it is where yeah you're like this goes beyond that and then there, we've also talked about double a games you know um yeah like ninja theory is a good example of a studio that was bought by microsoft and um hellblade that game it's like kind mm-hmm. of a double a game like it has really great production values but it's not you know the last of us part two it's not something bonkers level huge mm-hmm. production the rope physics just aren't up to snuff well, those studio but those studios are still making those types of games double five no no, no. Yeah, yeah 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 that's not my point my point is just that like there are now these gradients on that side on the like publisher backed corporate side whatever triple a big budget whatever you want to call it there are just these gradients that go all the way up to quadruple a or quintuple a and all the way down to double <laughs> a or single a and like we just kind of have uh, to uh. have the mental flexibility to <laughs> yeah we're gonna start pronouncing it ah uh. <laughs> how long we need to say ah for ah. when describing the game and on the indie side there's kind of the same thing and there's a ceiling only because as your organization grows and you become more successful you have to just keep expanding and if you're smart you know when to stop growing because yeah, like it can totally kill so many so many things and i think mm-hmm. what we're making an independent show as someone who now makes two independent shows this is something i think about a lot more than i used to of like sustainability and scale and size and i look at other things and as they grow or they get acquired by other people and it's like you have to be very very careful when you're independent because there's so much room for growth going up and it's just like you have to kind of navigate all of these different possibilities and so as a result i just think that like indie games will keep there will be a lot of diversity, like all the way down to the person by themselves making some amazing twine thing that maybe somebody at a Polygon or whatever, um, somebody at Bloomberg News decides to tell all the Bloomberg readers about. <laughs> yeah, we and cover like, a lot of twine games. You know, that's one yeah. person. Like that can still happen. Or the 10-person team, the super giant games, or the slightly bigger team, or the team that realizes, you know, for us to really keep doing this, we actually kind of need to find someone to buy us. You know, mm-hmm. I, there's, I, I'm optimistic. I think that all of these gradients can exist in the current world that you know that exists now at least Mm. i hope so it's way more exciting to be in this version of the world not that i didn't manage to find some cool indie games in 2006 (laughs) but it's cooler to be in this world of indie games now i totally agree agreed yeah i mean nowadays you don't have to play a single major publisher game and you can just have a like non-stop awesome experiences yeah um which is pretty cool yeah there's a lot of cool cool stuff and we haven't even mentioned some of the biggest and and most critically acclaimed indie games undertale stardew they're fine they don't need us to mention yeah they don't need (laughs) kirk what are you talking about they need the triple click bump man Um, (laughs) that's true undertale really could use (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right i love ending on this note of optimism so why don't we take a break and then we'll be back for it with one more thing 
It's me, James Arthur M., host of Minority Corner, your home through these bewild times for weekly doses of pop culture, history, news, nerdy stuff, and more through a BIPOC queer and allied lens. That's how you get Joel Schumacher putting nipples on Batman. Yeah. I didn't ask, like, and I say no. this as a game. I say this as a gay man, didn't ask for it. I don't need to see <laughs> Batman's nipples on his suit. Who is this for? Who is this for? <laughs> I did a bunch of research. I wanted to just know about the history of black people in Argentina. So not only did they erase black people from their history, they also started to flip and use it as slurs. We're not done. Like, we're not done with the work that needs to be done. And so stay awake. So join me and some of your new BFFs every Friday here on Maximum Fun to stay informed, empowered, and have some fun. Minority Corner, because together we're the majority. Hey, it's John Moe. And look, these are challenging times for our mental and emotional health. I get it. That's why I'm so excited for my new podcast, Depression Mode. We're tackling depression, anxiety, trauma, stress, the kinds of things that are just super common but don't get talked about nearly enough. Conversations that are illuminating, honest, and sometimes pretty funny with folks like Patton Oswalt, Kelsey Dara, and Open Mike Eagle. I have this public facing self, and then I have my emotional self that tends to stay hidden. It was about finding a way to communicate to somebody that, like, there's terrible sh going on back here. Plus, psychiatrists, psychologists, and all kinds of folks. On Depression Mode, we're working together, learning, helping each other out. We're a team. Join our team. Depression Mode for Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, it is time for one more thing. Maddie, start us off. Okay, so I played the game of getting a vaccine appointment this week. Which <laughs> Ooh, it's a good game. It's a really yeah. cool game. So Massachusetts has been pretty slow with the rollout. Supposedly we're being very methodical. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure that's it. <laughs> I, all I know is that I don't qualify for a vaccine and my girlfriend does. And I got her an appointment and I'm just really proud of myself for managing to do it. And I wanted to recommend one of the tools that I use, just in case we have any Massachusetts-based listeners who are interested. It's called Wario64's Twitter account. <laughs> it, yeah, you got to turn alerts on, and you yeah, got to follow that guy. Who is he? Uh, but actually, though, there's a Twitter account called Vaccine Time that is just Massachusetts appointments. And that's mainly what I used. Although, of course, I also did all the other classic tips that you do if you're waiting for like a PS5 drop or a sneaker drop or whatever thing you're into, <laughs> which is using a wired internet connection, keeping a ton of different tabs open, refreshing all the pages, entering all the data really quickly, memorizing everything so that I could type it really fast, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows all those cool gamer reflex tips and tricks by now, I'm sure. But <laughs> I got the appointment and I felt like a million dollars and like the coolest girlfriend in the world. So that was what I did this week. <laughs> Good job. I think it's wonderful using those skills for the people that you love. Yeah. I think that is like a, it is a, it is kind of like the gamer's love language is to be like, it I'm going to use my weird skills at buying things to get you a vaccine <laughs> shot. So that's really yep. nice. She was definitely like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get one. And she was like more nervous about it than I was. Like, oh, and I was oh, like, oh, oh, oh. I got this. And I feel like I have some kind of brain problem, honestly, because there were some moments in there when I was actually having fun. And I don't feel like that's good. I feel like it's bad, actually, if any aspect of getting a life-saving vaccine right. is gamified and if it feels like you're playing a game like that's horrifying and that shouldn't be how it is and I shouldn't feel like my gamer juice that's a system problem not a you problem <laughs> maybe but I just I shouldn't be experiencing that dopamine rush when I'm like refreshing a page and like barely making it like yeah. I don't want that 
sensation to be associated with getting a vaccine. That's stupid. That's not that's how fair. it should be. I sometimes think that we will look back at our at the games that we played now and be like, it's weird that I felt really excited every time I brutally murdered that person <laughs> on screen. So, you know, know. like it's sort of know. like our brains a are weird and we can take we should just take what we can get, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, this was a, an unmitigated victory by any any stretch. Yes. Good job. So. That rules. I wish you the same. I wish you the same success when you have to book your own. I can totally do it again. I've I've beaten the game once. Yep. I'm totally gonna get it in in two weeks when my eligibility opens up. I'm gonna nail uh, it. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I did the same thing for my, me and my wife. And what I did is every time a new one would pop up, I would just register for it. So I had like ten different appointments, and then mm-hmm. whenever an earlier one would come up, I yes. would do that instead. And so that was really a video game because that was like, okay, can I cancel You're this one? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like StarCraft Two, basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you need more pylons, though. Kirk, you got a repeat game. Give it to us. I do. I'm still playing Monster Hunter Rise. I'm still really liking it. Um, I switched weapons and it was a big deal. And I wanted to make this my kind of topic for this is just, so I had been using the dual blades, which are very straightforward. You have the two swords and you use that to hit the monsters in the face until they are knocked down and you win and they go boom. Um, mm-hmm. but I switched to the long sword, which has very been proved very popular in monster hunter rise. And I knew it was cool. And I watched a video of someone playing with it and it was like the coolest shit I'd ever seen. Cause there's a movie to do with a long sword where you attack and then you do a button. It's like, it's like part of a combo. First you attack and then you sheathe the sword. And this is a huge long sword. This is a long sword. That's like 15 feet long, gigantic weapon, like Sephiroth's sword. Yeah. It's Sephiroth's sword. And you sheathe the sword and you do this anime pose where it goes, <laughs> and like it goes in and this like little, you know, flash, comes out right from where the hilt is like in and you pose to the side and then you can do any of a number of moves from there and one is like this amazing like Ninja Gaiden like slash where you go flying forward 15 feet and you like end Mm -hmm. facing the other direction Kirk is acting all of this out no one can see this but Kirk is acting it all out right now pantomizing these moves so I I had seen how it worked and I knew people liked the longsword but I had always tried to use it and it was just sort of like waving the sword around at the monster's tail and that works okay if you're like not good but I was like okay I'm gonna really learn how to use this thing so I've been talking some with our friend um, Russ Frushstick at the Besties at Maddie's co- colleague at Polygon who has also mm-hmm. been playing this game. This is the first time he's really gotten into Monster Hunter so I've been giving him tips but he'd been using Longsword too so we started talking about it. He sent me this video from Arex Gaming which we'll link in the show notes and it's like this 28 minute tutorial on the Longsword and the thing with this game is that each weapon has a really kind of complex moveset and it's like a character class and you have to really learn how it works and there's this whole thing with the sword where like you hit it to like build up this one energy and then once you have the energy you can like raise your sword's level up to three levels and that unlocks other moves that you can do there's a lot of combos it's very fighting game-ish Maddie you would definitely enjoy mm-hmm. this I'm sure I would like it if I yeah. weren't you know still playing Dark Souls yeah, yeah it's right it takes a lot of time but I've been really getting into that and it's just it's been so fun because it's a much more complicated weapon than the dual blades but it's so much more fun because I'm like I can watch videos and the skill ceiling is just so high for me now I'm like this would be awesome like if I can know the monster so well that I can time all the counters because there's a lot of countering that you do with the long sword so it's like you have to learn the attack patterns and then get all of these moves and like oh, it's man. so sweet and when you really <laughs> nail it which I do sometimes it's the best feeling I'm just like I am the master gamer <laughs> like, I just like destroy you know you just like a four hit combo and then like counter it and like you're and your dude looks so cool you're doing these and 
it's great. And so I that was my main story is like the feeling of switching to a different weapon and realizing that I actually have a lot of learning to do, but that being super exciting because the game had started to feel a little flat. Like I was like, well, I'm just had these kind of boring swords that I fight with. And now it's like, oh man, I can't wait to just get better and better and better. So I'm still loving it. I'm still playing it. I'm taking a break and playing Final Fantasy VI for next week, but it's begrudgingly <laughs> because I'm really, really into Monster Hunter Rise. Wait until you find out about all the sweet combo moves you can do in Final <laughs> Fantasy VI. He's lying. I've been playing and he's lying to you. <laughs> it's almost as cool as pulling off uh, some of those blitz attacks. Um, if only. Some of those okay, right. uh, I am also playing a game that I've talked about before, and it is a game called Nosha, Gnosha, um, yeah. with a G. I think it's just pronounced Nosha. Um, mm-hmm. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I have now finished it, and I want to say it is one of the most infuriating games I've ever oh, played. No. But I also... <laughs> I also really liked it, but I also oh, okay. really liked it. Okay, let me let me set the scene for you. So this is a game that is essentially Among Us or like Mafia or Werewolf, one of those games where you're guessing the imposter, crossed with a visual novel. And the way it works is um, you are on this ship with 14 other people, um, and it is uh, one up to X number of people are going to be these aliens called Nosha, and they're trying to kill everybody, and everyone else is trying to figure out who is who. Um, but then the other part of the game is, is this kind of meta-narrative that is um, you are caught in a time loop where you're doing these loops over and over again with someone else and the two of you are trying to figure out why and to do that you have to learn as much as possible about all the other characters on the ship and you really get to know all 15 of the characters and you get to know their quirks and who they are and their personalities and who they'll vote for and blah 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 um, and that part is all super interesting and so like who the, who, you have who to they'll vote for as an imposter for a second I was like who they'll vote for like Democrat or Republican yeah if they'll vote <laughs> yeah, for that's Trump important you mean at the <laughs> The end of this loop yeah. who they'll vote in the, for the in imposter. each loop yeah each Got loop it. at the end of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um and so to do that you have to like fill, fill out these bullet points like each of them has a profile page and it'll be like six question marks and each of them is a fact about that person that you learn through like a cutscene that you can activate in some way and the way that to finish the game is to trigger all of those cutscenes so it's probably i don't know 50 60 of these cutscenes that you trigger or events that you trigger in some way or another the problem is the game doesn't tell you how to trigger them and so what the game does is you it'll it'll give you a hint by giving you this um kind of it's called an event searcher at the beginning of every loop where it'll tell you what conditions you need to set that loop in order to potentially trigger an event so okay on this loop i have one doctor no engineer um four nosha 15 humans or something like that whatever the you and Mm -hmm. you can change all these manually if you want but using the event finder it'll tell you like okay this is how to trigger that your role should be human your role should be no your role should be doctor, whatever it is. But when you get in there, it doesn't tell you like how to actually trigger the scene. So you just have to kind of brute force it and like hope that a scene will trigger. Um, talk to people. Like it's it's super frustrating because you're mm. then seeing the votes over and over again, and you have to do like a hundred plus loops. I think my final count was like 137 loops or something like that wow. before I finished the game. Um, and it's fascinating. These characters are really good, and the story is really interesting, and it explores a lot of interesting stuff along lines of. Any 
any good visual novel like a Zero Escape or a 999 or whatever, but because you are seeing the same lines of dialogue in the voting sequences so many times as the, mm. everyone just votes on whoever and says, I agree with this person. No, you know what? I don't think this person is to be trusted. <laughs> over and over and over again, it is infuriating how repetitive oh, it gets. So like, I really want to recommend this game because it's such a creative game and it's really cool and it's really enjoyable and the story's really good and the characters are fantastic. But the repetition is like <laughs> a lot to get That through. sounds yeah. to me like a caveat more than a you know than like a disqualifying thing right like everything that you sure. just said uh, that's yeah. good about it sounds great like that that all sounds good yeah no it's a really cool game and i think both of you would enjoy it yeah was it worth it to get to the ending and like unlock all that stuff like did you feel like the payoff merited all the work you did or i wouldn't say i wouldn't expect like some huge earth changing like game changing payoff at the end of it the way that like a traditional visual novel might have it's more that along the way there's so much cool stuff as you like get to know the characters and like see Mm. all these cool scenes and it's funny it's like legitimately funny there's like some great moments um there's one scene my favorite scene in the game light spoilers my favorite scene in the game is um there are these two characters and one of them like looks like a gray alien and that's just he looks like an alien that's just his thing um and one of them is like this this um the captain of the ship who is also like a psychopath and has forgotten it like gone totally crazy from wandering in space and the two of them are playing video games with each other and they're getting really competitive about it and it gets to the point where one of them accidentally slips up and says how could you beat me i'm nosha and then he's like uh shit and like the next voting session everyone's like all right i guess we vote for him now okay let's vote for him and we just spend the rest of the time like doing whatever um, and also I should mention that you like over the course of the game you level up and gain skills that you can use to manipulate the discussions in your favor so you mm. can generally by the end of the game you can generally like get the voting to go in whatever way you want by just convincing everybody right. with your mind tricks so it doesn't really have to be a grind I think the best way to play this game would be to like try to find a spoiler free walkthrough that tells you how to activate each of the mm-hmm. clues so you don't have to go through the same repetitive grind that I did um, so that's what I recommend doing if you decide. That sounds to play like this what game. I. That sounds like what I would do if I were going to play it. But it does sound cool. Yeah, but it's same. a really cool game. I yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. do recommend it, despite nice. the fact that it was just really frustrating for me because <laughs> I I went through so many loops where I just didn't activate any scenes and I was just like, wow, I'm really wasting my time. And yeah, <laughs> it gets repetitive. Nice. All right, that's cool. it for me. Um, Kirk, Maddie, it is time to say goodbye. It is indeed. It is. I'll see the two of you next week. See you next time. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.